hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Before we get started with our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come and study your word for the remarkable, complete canon of scripture that we have, for what a privilege we have of all people throughout history to have not only the complete canon of scripture, but to have the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who teaches us and guides us in the direction of your word. Father, we pray now that as we study your word, we will be responsive to the Holy Spirit's teaching and to the challenge of your word that we might grow, might grow by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you might guess, I just returned from Tampa, Florida, where I was down there teaching on adversity and stress the last three nights. It was not warm in Tampa. You need not be jealous. I went down there with my shorts and my T-shirts, ready to get a little sunshine, was 70 plus last weekend. It will be 70 plus this coming weekend. But it was 30 when I was there this morning. And those people were not happy. They, some people could not remember the last time they saw frost on the ground in Tampa, Florida. So it's been a while. I tell you, that's, they, they, they said that. They said that. You know, it was really good. I went down there to teach them how to have joy in the midst of adversity. And you realize there was no joy in Mudville because Mighty Casey did strike out. Those of you who aren't football fans, Tampa Bay lost the big football game last week. So they were, they were not real <coughs> excited about that. But it was a good time there. The uh, church had... Uh, I taught three nights and then yesterday morning for uh, two hours to a morning Bible class. So, hey, that, that kept me relatively busy. I didn't see anything of Tampa other than the inside of my hotel room. Other than yesterday, I did have lunch with a guy I went through seminary with, and I've known for about 25 years, and I'll talk about that probably in a minute or so as we get into our lesson. We are in James chapter 4. Verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Yeah, it was really fun to go into a a, a sort of a traditional type church building, not unlike the one we're in. But I had about ten more feet between the projector and the screen. And the screen was almost, was full size. It was probably ten feet across. And when you use this projector from a that distance on a screen like that, it was phenomenal. It really was. It, it made quite a bit of difference. So that was exciting to do that, and I think they were very responsive to what I taught. James 4, 13 through 17. Let me read through that passage before we get started so that we can have the context 
James is continuing to deal with the carnality in this congregation. We didn't get a, too much of a hint of their carnality in the first couple of chapters, and it wasn't until we hit chapter, the end of chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4 we realized how they are fragmenting from stress. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, and spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanish, vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, this is interesting because if you go back to the beginning of this section, the transition started back in 13, you see how James is contrasting. He's teaching by contrast. He talks about the, the wisdom, positive wisdom, back in James 3.13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and gentleness and wisdom. But contrast, if you have bitter jealousy. And then he talks about this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And so there's a contrast between people who are operating on cosmic thinking, worldly thinking, which is characterized as earthly, natural, and demonic, versus those who are operating on divine viewpoint. So you constantly see this contrast. This is what human viewpoint looks like. This is what divine viewpoint looks like. And by teaching, and I think that's very helpful for people to paint things in contrast. And again, just like Paul, there's no middle ground here. It's not, well, you're a little bit spiritual and a little bit carnal. It's one or the other. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God, and friendship with God is hostility towards the world. And the contrast and the context is talking about how they are handling or how they are failing to handle the adversity in their life. So we need to review briefly the basic principles on adversity and stress. Adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances on our soul. Now this is what the soul looks like. We have self-consciousness where we have our personal identity. We know who we are. We have mentality. We have volition. We have emotion. And we have a conscience. Now inside that conscience resides two different systems of standards. If we were to put it, I'll use the overhead, we could draw the conscience like this. There's two systems here, two competing systems of standards. You have human viewpoint standards and you have divine viewpoint standards and the big issue is volition. Are you going to be positive and choose to follow divine viewpoint thinking are you going to be negative? See, as soon as we hit any kind of test, we have a choice. And as soon as we opt to reject doctrine and handle the stress, handle the situation on our own, then immediately we are operating on a human viewpoint standard, which is nothing more than cosmic thinking and buying into the world system. It's friendship with the world. It's antagonism with God. So there's always this contrast. And on the divine viewpoint side... We have to confess our sins through 1 John 1, 1.9, puts us back in fellowship, and we can operate on divine viewpoint standards to produce 
uh, divine good in our life. Now, what happens, as we have seen, is when we continue to go through adversity and fail to respond God's ways using God's principles, procedures, and relying upon God's promises, then uh, fissures begin to develop in the soul and we begin to fragment. That's why when James talks back in James 1, 8, and 9 about the the double-minded man, it's the person who is waffling and unstable and swinging back and forth between these two options and all of the damage that that produces in the soul. There are various categories of adversity that put pressure on the soul. You have financial adversity, which is a particular problem in this context. James comes now to talk about apparently businessmen in the city, those who are, are they're in reversionism, they're under financial pressure, and we don't know what the actual con- context was, what was really going on with this congregation, but there seems to be a lot of emphasis on money in this epistle, if you've noticed. You've got problems with the way they dealt with the rich man. They, they, the street person that came in, they ignored him, and they kowtowed. They just did everything they could to help this rich guy, even though he was oppressing them. And then even back in the first chapter, you have mentions of problems with money. And so we had to get into the whole issue of what the Scriptures teach. And there's a positive view of money. There's nothing wrong with money in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with profit. There's nothing wrong with work. But it is not an end in itself. And they have uh, looked to finances as a solution to problems and when you start making, thinking finances are a solution to a problem, you're not solving problems. You are generating problems. So we can have adversity, different kinds of adversity on the soul. There's financial adversity, health adversity, rejection adversity, rege- uh, family adversity, criminal adversity, and career adversity. Second point is that stress is the inside pressure in the soul. It is what you let adversity do to you. Adversity is the outside pressure. Stress is the inside pressure. And when we yield to stress and operate on human viewpoint, then we end up with soul fragmentation, and it is self-destructive. Third point, adversity is inevitable. Stress is optional. We have a choice, and the issue is our volition. It is always our volition, no matter how How much you might think that you didn't have a choice, we always have a choice. Fourth point, adversity is what circumstances do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is what circumstances do to you, but stress is what you do to yourself. It is always a result of personal choice. Fifth, stress always results from attempts to solve problems on our own terms rather than God's terms. So stress is tantamount to sin, nature, control of the soul. Whenever we are choosing to respond to the outside pressure on the basis of our own resources, that is sin, nature, control. And when we're outside the sphere of the filling of the Holy Spirit under sin, nature, control, it always continues to fragment the soul. And then six, human systems teach us to manage stress. The Bible teaches us to block stress. So we are to completely avoid stress. Now, Psalm 18.2, I think is a great verse that we all ought to memorize. 
because this is really a theme of the whole soul fortress concept. Look at the, the metaphors that are used here to describe the protection from the Lord. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. That is some strong metaphorical language there, figurative language to indicate how God is our exclusive and sufficient protector against anything and everything, and we need to make sure we are living inside the fortification that God has designed for us. When we are inside the fortress, we are completely protected, but as soon as we choose to handle God's problems our way, we're outside the fortress and we are vulnerable to every attack, and that becomes self-destructive. Now, I've added a few things here because I want to emphasize some things on a whole new chart. We have eternal realities and temporal realities. At the cross, we're saved, Acts 16.31. I'm getting ready to screw up 30 years' worth of teaching and indoctrination. For 30 years, we've all focused on the top circle and the bottom circle. Graphically speaking, you have to, that takes up too much room on the page. So now we're, we're going to get into heresy, aren't we? We now have a left circle and a right circle. We're going to be confused for weeks. I know it. It's going to test everybody's flexibility. You can just have bigger circles if you go left and right than if you try to put both of them on the same side of the page, one on top of the other. So we have left and right circles. See how flexible we really are. Left circle is our eternal reality. We are in Christ. We enter into union with Christ through the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Where a number of different things occur, at the instant of salvation, we are reconciled to God. God is, God is recon, really, God is uh, reconciled to us. Uh, uh, excuse me, we are reconciled to God. We are redeemed. We are bought with a price. We are regenerated at the instant of salvation. God the Holy Spirit creates a human spirit, and we are regenerated. We are adopted into the family of God, so we have a new position as a adopted son, member of the royal family, an heir of God. We are a new creation. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. We are freed from the bondage of the sin nature, so we no longer have to follow the dictates of the sin nature. We now have true freedom. Now, sometimes when we get under certain temptations, because we have bad habits, we feel like experientially we do not feel as if we are free. And this is a major problem today, is that people just do not understand how to apply these, these realities to their experience. And so you end up with people who don't think doctrine works. And I mentioned in the introduction that I had lunch yesterday with an old friend of mine went to seminary with. And I remember, sadly, about 12 years ago when I sat down in his office and he's, he was on the verge of tears because he was confessing to me that he was going charismatic. And he is now a pastor of a charismatic church down in Tampa area. And we had lunch, and one of the things that amazed me is charismatics always seem to have this emphasis that they want to be 
They want more of God. They want a greater experience of God in their life. At the same time, he is just, the irony that I saw with him is he's also talking about what tremendous impact certain psychological seminars have had in his life. I'm thinking, well, the one reason you're feeling so divorced from God and the reason you went charismatic and wanted more of God is because you didn't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to begin with. So if you weren't relying exclusively upon God, no wonder it seemed as if doctrine didn't work in your life. And I just, I just don't understand. It's just odd how this these things seem to go together that people who want more of God, as soon as you hear somebody saying, I want, I want more of God, you're in trouble. Jesus was making the point to His disciples, we've studied this in John 14 on Sunday morning, that He was the greatest possible expression of God that ever could be in all of human history. You can't get a greater expression of God and the works of Jesus Christ and His words are recorded for us in the Scripture. So that when today, how do you know God? The Scripture says, we, even though we don't see Him, we love Him. It is a higher form of love to come to know Him non-experientially. If we were to come to know Him experientially, there would be distractions there. But as John points out in John 20... I think it's about verse 29. It's the lead-in to the key verse in John. He's talking to Thomas and he says, Blessed are you because you believed, because you've had this experiential encounter with me. You've seen the nail prints in my hands. You've seen the nail prints in my feet. You have seen me resurrected. Blessed are you because you believe, but blessed even more are those who believe who have not seen. You see, it is a higher form of faith to have a relationship with God based on the non-experiential, non-empirical data of Scripture than it is to have a personal encounter with Him in the flesh, in flesh and blood. And yet what we find today is this reversionistic, carnal rejection of that where people want to have some kind of empirical experience with Jesus or the Holy Spirit or something and they think that makes them a greater believer and that's just the opposite of the emphasis in Scripture. And it is so ironical, I find, that the same people, not always, but by and large, the same people who want more of God are also the same people who are buying into psychology or they're buying into this gimmick or that gimmick, something else to try to solve the problems in their life and make life work, and they're not relying on the exclusivity of Scripture. And what did Jesus say in John 14? We read the back around verse 21. Jesus said, I will love you, and if you love me and you keep my commandments, then I will come to you, will make my abode with you, which we've seen that word abiding is fellowship. We will make our abode with you, and my Father will make his abode with you, and we will disclose ourselves to you. In other words, you see this development this of stages in our revelation and understanding of God and our relationship with God, but it's based upon the assumption that we're going to take Him at His word ex- exclusively. That's the importance of sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of God's grace in handling problems. And as soon as we get into problems and we don't want to handle things by exclusively trusting Christ and His word, then we start looking somewhere else and we bring in other ideas and we start to 
compromise Scripture. And it's at that point, eventually, it's going to fall, life's going to fall apart because we have built our house on shifting sand. Luke chapter 6, uh, Jesus talks about Rocky and Sandy. You know Rocky and Sandy are? The guy who builds his house on rocky soil. That's the guy who is trying to solve his problems, builds his life structure, his life, his character on rocky soil, on the foundation of God's Word. And then there's the person who builds his life on sandy soil. And the person who builds that house, that life on sandy soil, it may be a beautiful house. It may work. Everything in the house may be the latest technological advancement. It may all work. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And it's a thing of joy, and everybody comes over to visit, and it's comfortable, and there aren't any problems, and then the storm comes. And because it's built on sand, it collapses. See, human viewpoint systems work. And that's the, that's the problem, is, is Americans were particularly prone to pragmatism. And we think that if it works, it's right. And all kinds of systems are going to work. The devil's no fool. He doesn't back systems that don't have some element of pragmatic value. But that's not the test of truth. It's whether it works. The test of truth is whether or not it is biblical. So we have we are freed from the power of sin nature, even though we may not feel like it at times because of bad habits and because of the things that we like to do. We are indeed free and we have a free volition to choose to obey God. We have new life in Christ, eternal life. We are sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit and we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Then we have the right circle. This is the experiential side, temporal realities where we are filled by means of God the Holy Spirit. These circles are white because they represent light. Positionally, we are sons of God. We are in the light. And in Ephesians uh, 5-7, Paul says that you are light, walk as sons of light. So we are light. That's the left circle in Christ, our positional reality. And the right circle is we are in the light and we need to walk in the light. And we do that by walking by the Holy Spirit. Then we have uh, carnality, which just disappeared off the screen. And when we, when we sin, we go outside the bottom circle into carnality, and we are out of fellowship, under the control of the sin nature, walking in darkness, and the only way back is through the use of 1 John 1, 9. That's why it's the first problem-solving device. Because as long as we're out of fellowship... As long as we're walking in darkness, we're operating on human viewpoint thinking, we're operating on cosmic thinking, and as long as we're trying to solve our problems our ways and on our agenda, it's not going to count for anything. It's eventually going to lead to fragmentation of the soul. So the first thing we have to do is get, get back inside the fortress through 1 John 1, 9. Being inside the right circle inside the bottom circle, for those of you who haven't made the paradigm shift yet. Being inside the right circle is the same thing as being inside the soul fortress. Being inside the right circle is the same thing as being inside the, uh, the soul fortress. And so what we're basically saying is the dynamics of the stress busters are the... Are the in a sense, the vertical dynamics 
that are associated, the skills that are developed in the process of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Am I stretching the point there in developing that metaphor? We get inside the right circle. That is positional. That is a static thing to be there. That doesn't go anywhere. We are there for one purpose, and that is to generate forward momentum in the spiritual life. That's why it's called walking by means of the Spirit. So there is a walk by means of God, the Holy Spirit, that's unique to the church age, and it's based upon the Word of God because the walk is also said to be by means of faith and not by sight. That means it is it excludes empirical data as the basis for the walk. Now, faith is not faith in faith. Faith is not some mystical power. This is not something that you that you have to contemplate and generate from within. Faith is is trusting something. And what are we trusting? In saving faith, the left circle, you trust the the finished work of Christ on the cross. At that point, we are saved and we are inside the left circle and we are secure. But that is the first faith. Romans 1.17 says that the just will live by faith. And just prior to that, it says, for we go, we go from faith to faith. That's from saving faith to living faith, the Christian life faith. So the first faith is the left circle. The second faith is what's required in the second, and that is a walk by means of faith, walking by the Holy Spirit, walking in the light. And what's happening in James is they are not walking in the light. They are in carnality, and they are taking a unique direction to solve their problems. They are trying to solve their problems through financial success. Verse 13, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. See, this is the whole, their whole orientation is that we're going to solve the problems in our life through financial success. We're going to solve problems in our life through business success. We are going to look to money and material things, the things that money can buy as a source of happiness. This is indicative of the reversionist believer who is in the frantic search for happiness. They are looking to the details of life in order to find happiness and in order to find meaning and value in life. How do you solve problems? You solve problems through money. That's what you have to have. Now, I'm not uh, saying that money doesn't help in some problems. What I'm saying is that money, career, success is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And when you start making that an end in itself, then you are on the road to misery and the road to self-destruction. So they say, come now, you who say, you who say relates to those who are seeking uh, to find success in life. So let's summarize that verse. First of all, they are saying that career, success, money are, excuse me, point number one, career, success, and money are legitimate pursuits in life, but they are not an end, but only a means to an end. They're only a means to an end. Too often Christians sometimes get the idea that you're more spiritual if you're poor. That's the ascetic, that's the legalist coming out in some people. Uh, It is great to have financial success if you're doing it to glorify the Lord. 
For the reversionist believer, career, money, and success are used as problem solvers. They are used as problem solvers, but they don't solve problems. They become a problem manufacturer. A problem manufacturer. Third point that is emphasized in this verse is having rejected doctrine, the reversionist believer is on a frantic search for happiness. He's looking for to the details of life to solve his problems. Remember, you have to have doctrinal orientation before you can master the details of life. Point four, for the advancing believer, career, money, and success are a means to an end. The end is spiritual maturity and glorifying God. Profit, success, career are all legitimate until they become a priority over doctrine and our relationship with the Lord. So this is exactly what they're trying to do. They are they're forgetting God, they're forgetting the sovereignty of God in their life and that the, the relationship of God, and they're just assuming that the way to deal with all their problems, the, the uh, testing, the adversity, is to go out and become a success in life. Point five, the reason is that the reversionist believer is operating on arrogant skills. So his self-absorption becomes obsession with success to the exclusion of doctrine, God, and spiritual priorities are then rejected. Now remember, the spiritual skills are the path to self-destruction. I mean, the arrogant skills. In fact, we could call these the self-destruction skills. Starts off with self-absorption. You immediately hit a test, some kind of adversity, and you begin to focus on how it hurts you, on your problem, on how miserable it is, how your plans have been upset, how you're, you're not getting your way anymore, and you begin to focus on yourself. And so that leads then to self-indulgence because the more you focus on yourself and the more you become subjective, the more you think that, that your personal comfort is the issue. So you have to solve the problem. And if the problem is dealing with poverty, and apparently that was a problem that, that these believers were dealing with, apparently they were going through some financial testing, they were going to indulge that and in whatever way it, it took. So they decided on whatever scheme to go out and make their fortune. So self-absorption leads to indulging those desires, and then that leads to self-justification. Now you have to justify your position and somehow make it right. You have to cloak it in the garb of Christianity in the garb of something. I'm really doing this to glorify God. I'll go out and I'll make a fortune and then I can give it to the church. How many times have we heard that? I'll support missionaries. Now, sometimes that happens with some people and that's good and that's legitimate. But many times you hear people just try to be pious and justify their, their greed and their materialism and their obsessive, compulsive, workaholic habits. And instead of focusing on the priority of God, they're focusing on their job and that always supplants learning the Word. And this leads to self-deception. Self-deception dis dis divorces us from reality, gives us a distorted view of reality, 
And the cycle just goes on and on and gets worse and worse as it deteriorates into self-destructive behavior. So that last point, the reversionist believers operating on arrogant skills, so his self-absorption becomes obsession. And he becomes begins to obsess on his job and his success, and it pushes doctrine, it pushes the priority of doctrine, his relationship with the Lord, and spiritual priorities, and everything becomes reversed. And he enters into reverse process reversionism, which is the final stage of reversionism. And we've gone through the stages of reversionism before. I don't want to take the time to review that tonight. And then we come to point six. The result is that his plans exclude God and focus exclusively on indulging his own obsessions. And he forgets everything else and God is no longer part of the picture. So we're going to make our plans independent of God. We're not going to consult God. We're not going to pray about it. We're just going to jump out and make our own decisions and pick a city and go out and make a profit. That brings us to verse 14. Or the last point, rather, point 7. Part of doctrinal orientation is mastery of the details of life. Now, when we think about the problem-solving devices of stress busters, the first one's First John 1, 9, confession, getting back inside the fortress. Then we have the foundation of the fortress, which is the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Then the next step is the faith rest drill. Everything is characterized by faith, trusting God, walk by faith and not by sight. And that brings us to grace orientation. Grace orientation is authority orientation and it's humility. Now, we're going to see that in the next verse or two, their lack of grace orientation. And then doctrinal orientation. When we start becoming oriented to doctrine as a priority, then and only then are we able to get a proper perspective of the details of life. And we quit looking to the details of life, family, success, business, money, sex, materialism, uh, friends, social life, whatever it may be, we always tend to focus on the details of life. If I only had this, if I only had that, then I would be happy. With doctrinal orientation comes the mastery of the details of life. So we see in this whole passage that they are completely divorced from any orientation to doctrine and they are in full-scale rebellion against God. Now that brings us to verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. Emphasizing the creator-creature distinction. You're going out and you're making these plans thinking you're in control of your life. This is always the problem with man. We think we're in control. It's our agenda. And especially with obsessive types. You run into people and uh, we joke and we kid with them. And I know people who have everything hanging in their closet and they're... Coat hangers are exactly two inches apart, and everything hangs perfectly. And um, I know of husbands who, if their wife puts on two pounds, they immediately, okay, you've, you're, you've got to get that under control. But they have to control everything, and they go to business, and they control. They're control freaks. That's obsessiveness. You think that you can solve problems in your life through controlling all the details of life. And that, again, is a problem. The solution is getting into the Scripture and letting God renovate your thinking. 
It's not going to some psychiatric system or psychological system and learning how to get in touch with who you really are or going through some other kind of shamanistic mumbo-jumbo. It is letting the Word of God deal with you because as long as we think we're in control, we've got a problem with arrogance. That's part of the function of the arrogant skills and self-absorption. Another word for self-absorption is obsessiveness. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be neat and orderly and all of those things. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when that obsesses you, you become obsessed with that and it characterizes everything in your life, maybe you need to think about the fact that you're trying to control things instead of let God control things. And then verse 14 comes along and it's emphasizing our finiteness. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You can't control it. We are we have absolutely no control over anything. That is simply an illusion. And then uh, James uses the illustration, you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now, this is a good time for us to have this illustration. If you want to know what your life is really like, just go outside and breathe and exhale and see how long it lasts. That is our life. Go out there in that 10 degree weather. See, somebody's going to get this tape in about six months and they're going to think, what's he talking about? It's 95 degrees out there. Just go out there where it's 10 degrees. Breathe, exhale heavily and you'll see your breath and it'll be gone in two seconds. That's our life. That's the illustration that James is using here. This is exactly the value of of human viewpoint thinking and human viewpoint problem solving. So often we get caught up and wrapped up in all the little details and we obsess on problems that come along. So many times we obsess on little problems. Now there are major problems we deal with, adversities in the realm of health that may go on for years. We have other major adversities, but so often it's the little things that come along that really distract us and get us out of fellowship. And we need to ask ourselves the question sometimes, what effect or what impact is this going to have or who's going to care in 20 years? See, a lot of the things that we get really upset about, it's not going to matter one way or the other 10, 20, two weeks from now, we're not going to remember. We need to focus on what does have eternal value and only divine viewpoint thinking, producing divine good under the filling of the Holy Spirit through applying doctrine is going to count, and that is going to count for eternity. That is going to have eternal value, and it is going to be stored in heaven for all to see throughout all eternity, and it's going to be the basis of rewards and inheritance. So we need to get our focus off of the temporal and off of our control and into the control that God has over our life in submission to His will and not trying to handle everything on our own. Now, by exegesis of this verse, it's really a bad translation at the beginning where it says, yet you do not know. It starts off with a relative pronoun of quality, oitines, which really should be translated such a kind or this kind of person. It's referring to the kind of person that is planning to go off and start a business and have a success and God has no part in his planning. 
says such a person, this kind of person who is obsessing, who is arrogant, who has excluded God, this kind of person has really has no control. He is in self-deception. He, think he thinks that by going out and setting up his goals and setting up his objectives for the next year, that he can actually accomplish that. And I, rem- I know that in some businesses and in some situations that's very good practice. I'm not knocking that. But I'm telling you, in the spiritual life, you have to have flexibility. One of the greatest frustrations I had in a former church was that I had three deacons, all of whom were extremely successful businessmen. And every year they wanted me to put forth all these goals and objectives, things we're going to accomplish in the church. And I kept trying to convince these guys, you can't quantify the work of God in a local church. God's standard for success is faithfulness. It is not numbers. You can't quantify it. And that is the hardest thing for some men to get into their souls because their business life is wrapped around quantifiable and measurable goals and advances. And that's good in your job, but that is you cannot bring that over into the Christian life. Principles of management, leadership, and salesmanship that may work in terms of your job are not the spiritual life because God has a different agenda. And the issue in God's plan is faithfulness, not quantity. It's not how many people got witness to this year. It's not how many many people started coming to church this year, how many visitors you managed to get through the door. It's not how many people increased their tithe, which is always a thing... You know, that was another thing that came up in conversation yesterday. Just so you don't think I'm an ogre, when I get in conversations with some of my friends like this, I just let a lot of things go by because I I learned a long time ago that what Jesus said was don't cast pearls before swine. So I don't want you getting the impression that that I rise to the challenge and, and get engaged in some kind of theological controversy every 30 seconds, which I could have. But one of the things this guy pointed out, which it's sad but true, and it has to do with, with, with uh, he, he said, well, you know, one of the reasons I quit being a dispensationalist is because dispensationalists don't ever give. He said, you know, my congregation gives a lot more than I emphasize tithing. Well, I, didn't, I did not engage him in an argument at that point. But see, there are people who think that way. First of all, his experience, he's basing his argument on his own personal experience that he was never challenged to give grace. He never really understood grace-oriented giving to begin with. Grace-oriented giving goes beyond tithing. I mean, the problem with tithing is it limits you to 10%. You say, oh, all I have to do is give 10%. Grace-oriented believers give generously. So it's not an issue of tithing. That's an Old Testament concept related to to Israel. So he threw out dispensationalism because he didn't think the believers he knew that were dispensationalists, he didn't think they gave enough, which is an experiential argument and not an argument from Scripture. But there's an element of truth there. I've known so many people who are, who are dispensationalists are in Bible churches who get uh, emphasized grace, and grace means that I don't have to give now. You know, tithing was Old Testament, so that means I don't have to give. And that's just not true. That, that's really absurd. Uh, giving is just as part, much a part of the priesthood of the believer's life as prayer and witnessing and everything else. It is our responsibility. It's just that we're not limited by a mere 
Okay, I won't go any further on that hobby horse. And I just, you know, some things, some ideas people get into, you just really wonder why they're still Christians or what the game is. Verse 15. Verse 15, James gives us the contrast. Okay, instead of making your plans in your own way, you need to get in touch with reality, which means that life is a vapor. And in contrast, instead, verse 15, in contrast, what you ought to say is if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. This is the crux of the problem. There's a lack of authority orientation to God. This goes to a more basic problem-solving device or stress buster, which is grace orientation. Grace orientation recognizes that God has done everything and we rest and rely on what He did. To recognize that God did everything, we need to be willing to submit to Him. That is authority orientation. It is true humility. That's why grace orientation is made up of these other concepts that we go back to things that you were taught in the past about the edification complex of the soul and the divine dinosphere. And you see what I'm doing is I'm bringing some of those old illustrations together and we're pulling, pulling it all into the soul fortress. You see that? We're pulling it all into the soul fortress so that old concepts that were, we mentioned, relaxed mental attitude, mastery of the details of life, authority orientation, are all part of these basic concepts in in the soul fortress. So we need to have authority orientation, and of course this introduces the whole concept of the will of God. How do we know the will of God? Now this is a pressing issue, especially for young people. For those of us who are a little more seasoned, it's not always a pressing issue, especially if there's some level of stability in your life, but as soon as something comes along, you get a call from or a letter from some guy named Bryce Birch you never heard of. Everything's going fine in your life and just smooth. And then some guy in Connecticut sends you a letter and says, we got a looking for a pastor and somebody rec- recommended you. Then you become concerned with the will of God in your life. Questions, But usually these are the kinds of questions that, of course, I'm referring to when Bryce contacted me. That's been over two years now, hasn't it? My, how time flies when you're having fun. But this is usually the question young people, if you've got kids, they're going to start asking these questions when they get into high school, when they get into college, when they start thinking about the... Because that's when they make the big life decisions. How do I know God's will for my life? Where should I go to college? What kind of career should I have? Who should I marry? These are major issues. How do we know the will of God? And it is very simple, doctrinally. Sometimes it's not simple experientially because it gets all caught up with our agenda versus God's agenda. Point number one, the term will of God relates to God's sovereign volition with regard to His creation. God's sovereign volition with regard to His Creation. Will indicates volition. Will indicates volition. Usually, 
what happens when you get into this is people start thinking about the will of God subjectively before they think about it objectively. They're in some kind of pressure situation. They have some crucial decision to make. Like I said, it's usually career, college, place to live. Should I move? Should I stay here? Should I live with my parents? Those kinds of questions. So we have to stop and immediately get anchored in the objective Word of God and quit thinking subjectively. And it's always important to prepare your kids, especially ahead of time, by thinking about God's will correctly. Point number two, there are three general categories to the will of God. Three general categories to the will of God. The first is God's sovereign will. We might call this, or it is sometimes called by theologians, the decretive will of God or God's decreed will. Going back to the Council of Divine Decrees, we do not know all that God has decreed. What is, what happens, is what God decreed. That is God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will includes His permissive will. God's sovereign will includes the fact that, that Adam sinned. He had the option to disobey God and to sin. So God's sovereign will includes the existence of sin and evil. Now, the second category is God's revealed will, which is also sometimes referred to as God's moral will or His desired will. I like the term His revealed will. These are the absolutes in God's Word, the principles, the precepts, the mandates of Scripture. God says, this is what I want you to do. Now, God told... Adam, in the garden, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is God's revealed will. Adam sinned. He suffered the consequences. He did not die physically. God did not destroy the human race at that instance, which indicates that it was within God's sovereign will to permit or to allow sin to take place. And then there is God's overriding will. See, many times in our life we make decisions that are in contrast contrast to God's revealed will, His sovereign will allows it, but sometimes He overrides the decision or the consequences of that decision. Sometimes I think God's revealed will is for us to give, and to give generously and abundantly, but because in God's sovereign will at that point in our life, we don't have any money. I remember wrestling with this at one point when I was, when you go to seminary, sometimes there's just all this pressure. I, I always hated going to certain churches because they put all this pressure on you and made you feel guilty if you didn't give. And uh, when you're going to seminary and you're making $500 a month and your bills are about $800 a month, it's real hard to uh, to give because God hasn't given you anything. And I realize that there are certain times in life when God's revealed will is for you to do something. His sovereign will inc- includes the fact that, that right now you don't have any money, uh, but uh, and so he's overriding it. He knows what your motive is and what your desire is. Now, don't go using that as an excuse for not giving. I always hate saying things like that because I know somebody's going to walk out of here and go, well, I just don't have enough money right now. And, and, and they're going to use that as an excuse to, to be licentious. But um, that's just one example of how God may override things. And, and we'll see another example from the Scriptures in a minute. Point number three. The specifics of God's decreed will are mostly unknown. We don't know what God's sovereign will is or what His decreed will is until it happens. 
history is the outworking of the sovereign will of God, in other words. We don't know what tomorrow entails, what God will permit, until it happens. So we don't get wrapped around the axle trying to figure out. People say, well, what's God's will in this? Well, it may be an arena of sovereignty that is not for us to know. So in the decreed will of God, the specifics are mostly unknown until they happen. Point number four. We can only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will. And that is in the Scriptures. That's all the precepts, the mandates, the prohibitions that we find in the Scripture. So the Scriptures, if we look at all of them, and remember there's like 78 imperative mood verbs in James alone. That means in the New Testament there must be I would guess somewhere close to a thousand imperative verbs for the believer. This defines the boundaries of the Christian life. Prohibitions are outside the positive mandates and commands are inside. This is the will of God that you abstain from fornication. Just real clear, precise statements. Statements like pray without ceasing. That's the will of God for your life. This, all of these mandates that we are to be involved in witnessing, we're to be giving as part of our priesthood, we're to be studying the Word of God, uh, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. All of these are the mandates that define God's decreed will for the life of the believer. This is our revealed will. So part of the answer that we need to learn, if we say, how is God's will for my life? Well, it starts with, are you doing what the Scripture says to do? About 70 or 80% of the time, that's really all that matters, is are you doing this? Are you you living within the revealed will of God? Making a decision... now. Sometimes people are taught that God's will functions like this. There's kind of a general abstract idea, but, but God has a specific will for you. He has a geographical will. He has a career. He has a job. He has an operational will. These are the terms that are used, but the phrase that I heard was that you need to be living in the center of God's will. Because only there will God bless you when you're living in the center of God's will. You have to be living in the right place geographically. And you have to be doing the right thing. You have to go to the right college. And if you don't, oh my gosh, if I don't, I'm outside the will of God. And I'll never be blessed in my life. And I'll spend the rest of my life wandering around and outside the will of God, trying to figure out how to get back in the will of God. And the thing is, if you take that to its logical conclusion, then the first thing you need to do when you get out of bed in the morning is decide whether or not God wants you to drink orange juice first or water first. Should Lord, should I put, is it your will for me to put my left shoe on first or my right shoe on first? Because what, what this position entails is that God has a specific will for every decision in life. One thing's right and everything else is wrong. And my gosh, if I get up in the morning and I put on a right shoe first, I put on my Nikes instead of my Adidas. I'll be outside of God's will all day long. And there are people who actually think that. Now, there are times, I think the will of God is, is, is more like this. 
Here you have a circle defining God's revealed will. As long as you are walking by means of the Spirit, filled with, let's put it in the right order, filled with the Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit, in fellowship with the Lord, learning doctrine, assimilating into your thinking, operating on divine viewpoint thinking, and applying doctrine in all of the precepts of God's Word, you're in the will of God. Period. If God has a specific geographical will for you, or a specific operational will, you can't escape it. Jonah tried. Until the point that God came to Jonah and said, Jonah, I want you in Nineveh, it didn't really matter to God whether Jonah was in Israel, whether he was in Samaria, whether he was up near Galilee, whether he was down in Jerusalem. That wasn't an issue geographically as long as he was doing what God wanted him to do, living his life to the glory of God and applying doctrine. But there came a time when there was something specific that God wanted him to do. Am I clear? Sometimes, God, And when that happens, you can't miss it. I mean, if you decide, if God wants you to go to Yukon instead of a good school like Texas A&M, how could that be God's will? If God wants you to go, and you decide that you want to go to Texas A&M, something is going to happen that will prevent that. If God specifically wants you. Or if you think that, that you want to go to Harvard, and God wants you to go to uh, Princeton or Yale, and you head off in the wrong direction, God will not... If, if you are walking in the circle, you're filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, submissive to God, willing to follow His leadership... God's not going to let you make a wrong decision and end up in Timbuktu when He wants you somewhere else. He will make it clear to you. It happened with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was supposed to go to Rome in, in Acts after his third missionary journey. But the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit kept warning him that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to come under persecution and testing, you're going to be arrested and all this, and that was the consequence of going in the wrong direction. God got him to Rome, though, didn't he? Now, see, you're going to end up getting where God wants you to be eventually. If you are not submissive at some point and you get involved in carnality and you start resisting what seems to obviously be the direction the Lord's moving you, then perhaps you'll get there and go through a little divine discipline in the process. But the point is that when there are specifics in God's will, it's not like some shell game. That's so often how people treat this. Like God's got His walnut shells out there on the table, and His will for your life is a pea that's under one of those shells, and God's moving them around and says, guess which one it's under. It's not a guessing game. More often than not, the will of God functions like an FTX. Those of you who are in the military know what a field training exercise is. And I remember when I was in ROTC, and every year we would have FTXs out in the woods behind the military science building. What they would do is all year you, were to, you would learn principles of small unit tactics and patrol leader tactics and leadership skills and all of these things. 
And then they would take you out there and they had these various lanes that were cut through the woods back there or set up and they might have ambushes or booby traps or you never knew what you were going to hit. And you'd be divided, you'd divide everybody up into squads of four or five men and each guy and one would go down that lane and at each stage a different person would get the designation as a patrol leader and that's his test. And he didn't know what would happen. He'd be given his mission, his operation order and he's... They would take the patrol in there, diddy bopping through the woods, and then something's going to happen. You're going to get ambushed, booby-trapped, somebody's going to go nuts. Who knows what it'll be. And how you respond to that situation is the test. And it's not that there's any one right answer. Within this circle, there may be several right answers. The test is not so much getting the right answer, it's, did you apply doctrine in getting the answer? I mean, it may be okay to live in Norwich or to live in Preston or to live in Gales Ferry or to live in Boston. God really doesn't care as far as your plan goes for your life at that point, where you, whether you're on the East Coast or the West Coast or the Left Coast or the Right Coast. God doesn't care. The issue is, are you making the decision in light of biblical criterion? Where's the best place to live? Where can I get the best job? Where can I glorify God? Where's the best church where I can get doctrine and grow as a believer and have a ministry? Are you making the decision based on the right kind of qualifications? Are you basing them, oh, I'm going to make more money here so I can pursue whatever I want to do? That's the test. So you've already failed because you're in self-absorption and you're going to go out and indulge your own uh, whims and pursue your own agenda in life. And so you fail. See, so a lot of times the test is how you go about the procedure of making the decision, not whether or not you put the right shoe on first or the left shoe on first or decide to just really get crazy and put your shirt on first. As long as you're deciding to make, you know, the way you're going about the decision-making process is consistent with God's Word, filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, operating by faith. So, we only know the specifics of God's revealed or moral will through the precepts, mandates, and prohibitions of Scripture. Point five, which is what I just covered, God may not always have a specific geographic or operational will for our life. The issue is how we make the decision. When God does have an operational geographical will, specifically, He will make it clear to us. Point six, Knowing God's will is based on the grace learning spiral. That God the Holy Spirit teaches us doctrine. Are we responsive and submissive to His teaching, responding to the challenge of Scripture, and responding to His guiding and leading? For the Holy Spirit always leads us if we are sons of God, according to Romans 8 and Galatians 5.18. So we will always be led by God the Holy Spirit. Point number seven, the geographical will of God relates to operating in a specific location. And I've given you examples already of Jonah going to Nineveh and Paul in Rome. Now we're going to look at another example. Well, we're about out of time, so we'll have to come back and look at two other examples in the Scriptures next time. We'll come back and wrap up the will of God next time. We'll stop here at point seven. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to study your word, which is the expression of your will for our lives. Father, we pray that we might have an attitude that is responsive 
and submissive to that under the leading, under the filling, and under the ministry of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that we might be challenged by these things and understand the important issues related to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.